Synchro Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded remotely from Palo Alto in Orange County, California. Don't forget to check out our other episodes and please enjoy the show. What happens in the addicted brain is that we essentially reset our hedonic or joy or pleasure set point to the side of pain. We're walking around in a dopamine deficit state. Now we need our drug not to get high, but just to feel normal. And we're not when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. I'm a dopamine addict, can't break the habit, runs in my head. Psychosomatic, stare in the mirror, hide in the attic, cry in my bed. I'm a dopamine addict. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with multi-platinum singer-songwriter Alec Benjamin. In addition to his many achievements as a performer, Alec is a strong advocate for mental health awareness, and his song Dopamine Addict deals specifically with social media use and its related impacts on mental health. Also joining us is Stanford University psychiatry professor Dr. Anna Limke. Dr. Limke is the author of last year's instant bestseller, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. The book argues that there's a direct correlation between our nation's high rates of depression and the abundance of opportunities we have for pleasure at any given moment. The title of today's episode on the podcast is Dopamine Addict, Understanding the Brain Mechanisms that Govern Pain and Pleasure. Hello, Alec and Anna. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. I want to start out just by saying, Alec, you've got one hell of a voice. Thanks. Yeah, and I, I understand that you consider yourself a, a self-taught musician, but I imagine that you've always sung? No, I actually didn't. I didn't always sing. I didn't start singing until I was about 15 or 16. I didn't really take it seriously. Um, I sang at summer camp, and I was like, oh, I kind of like this, and I like the way that it made me feel. I, I didn't really consider it to be something that like I was going to pursue professionally. Um, so it kind of actually came to me later in life. Yeah. Thank you for the compliment. Well, no problem. I mean, many of your songs, Dopamine Addict included, are remarkably candid and, and vulnerable. So, I mean, does being self-taught have anything to do with that? Like, like you've been able to maintain a certain purity in how you express yourself? I suppose the reason why I wanted to make music in the first place was because uh, I found that it was the best way for me to express myself and the things that I was thinking about. And um, it, it first came to me like... I had to have something to want to express first, um, and I just chose music as the medium. Um, it just it just so happened that music was the one that that worked for me. But it didn't start with the music; it started with my desire to uh, talk about the things that I was thinking about. And I used to um, talk to my friends and my teachers and others uh, in school, uh, and I realized that I was pretty annoying. Uh, and so if I could wrap up my thoughts in a song, then I had a higher probability of people listening to the to my thoughts and ideas and the things that I wanted to say and express. Um, so music was sort of, it came second. What came first was my desire to express myself. 
So you find it's much easier for you to express yourself in song rather than in your day-to-day -day relationships. Well, it's not easier, but it's more effective. Uh, it's it's more difficult, I, I feel. Um, but uh, I have a greater chance of, of reaching more people if I can sort of also wrap my thoughts up in a song that is appealing, not just for the content of what I'm saying, but also for, you know, the, 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 the musical um, value of the song. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. Absolutely. What inspired you to write this song? Is it based on your own relationship to social media? I think it's just based on my relationship with everything, but I think because, you know, this is how my brain operates, it made me far more susceptible to having a very tumultuous relationship with social media. Um, and so when the pandemic first hit, um, you know, TikTok would like really blew up. And, and, you know, even before that, obviously there was like Instagram and Twitter and all of these different social media applications. And, um, but it, it sort of like, you know, uh, having to stay at home um, all the time really sort of like exacerbated all of the uh, all of my, you know, all the all the things that were all the issues that I had had pre-pandemic, and it kind of came to a head at the beginning of the pandemic when I was spending so much time on social media, and also like the reason why I make music is so that ultimately I can go on stage and perform these songs live for people. Um, but when that was taken away, all I had was social media. That was the only platform mm -hmm. where I could sort of uh, express myself, um, and uh, it's very, you know, it. It 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 uh, it destroyed me at the beginning, and I had to sort of like I really like I got to a point where I threw my phone through the wall, and I was just like I can't even look at my phone anymore. I quickly came to regret that decision because I hadn't backed up any of my things to the cloud, and then I had to buy a new phone, you know. But yeah. like ultimately, I realized like okay, this is this is not working, um, and uh, you know it was it was not just social media. There were a lot of other things that I vices that I engaged in, things that I tried, you know, to so that I could sort of like you know keep chasing that that uh i don't know i was really sad because of the pandemic and also like i you know i have i've i've i'm i'm a feast or famine kind of person so i'm like you know when i learn guitar i like get like addicted to it and then when i do mm -hmm. i don't know i can't really explain it but <laughs> no that makes sense i mean do you do you know whether or not the song has inspired any of your fans to reflect on their own relationship to social media i mean has anyone approached you since you've released it um i think that it's pretty it's it's you know I think it's still pretty pretty new so mm. and I'm I'm just about to tour the album um, mm -hmm. but on this last tour that I did um, for some of the dates my album had been released and uh, it was one of the songs that I think resonated most with people um, and I think that a lot of people are feeling this way I mean the apps are designed in such a way where it's like it's kind of like a dopamine slot machine you know you keep refreshing it to see how many mm. how many people liked you and like how you know what people think about you and it's like it's very a uh, it's very it's it's very dangerous for me, you know. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of pros and a lot of cons. Well, I'm sure Anna would agree, and we we yes. couldn't have found a better expert to weigh on what this song's about. So, uh, and Anna, as you know, I just finished your book, Dopamine Nation. Loved it, and I, I certainly would recommend it to our listeners. So, uh, which of the lyrics in Alex's song resonates most with the work you do? I really like your song, Alec. It's it's awesome, and you you dopamine features prominently in those lyrics, and I think just the way that you describe that constant pull, um, where it keeps kind of sucking you back in. I don't think that was your exact language, and also like the song itself has sort of this sort of rhythmic return to kind of some of the similar phrasing, which is sort of also hypnotic in a way too which is very much as you say how social media was engineered to keep us spending time there 
by doing all the things that our reward pathway likes. What should we like, do? Like, as, as, you know, sort of like a, how should we sort of like try to regulate our relationship with social media, especially, you know, it's like a, you know, millennial and Gen Z, like what, what, what should we do? You know, because it is like, obviously like it's, it is a necessary, I mean, you kind of have to be on it, but how do you make sure that it doesn't sort of like take over your life, especially when you have already an addictive personality? What are some things you can do? Yeah. So for somebody who is prone to addiction and who has struggled with, uh, you know, addiction to social media, and by the way, let me just say addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. And that harm can take many forms, but it can just also be psychological harms of anxiety, irritability, insomnia, restlessness, craving, intrusive thoughts of wanting to use, which with social media can often manifest as fear of missing out. So what I recommend is to start with actually a digital fast from social media as a way to reset reward pathways. Um, you know, in general, it takes about 30 days of abstaining from our drug of choice to begin to reset healthy dopamine reward levels. But if you can't do 30 days because your profession won't allow you to or uh, your school obligations won't allow you to, or whatever it is. Um, you can try less than that. Um, is there ever a point at which you have used something so much? Like, you know, obviously there's a difference between like, you know, I mean, maybe there isn't taking a drug and your addiction being to like an application, but is it like, is there a point at which it's like, it's too far gone for you to reset your dopamine path? Never, never, never. You're Not never. even from like a real substance? No, 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 it's never too late. And I've seen miracles happen for people with severe addiction, even very late in life, get into recovery. So it's I, I watched, never too late. On, on, the, on the Joe Rogan podcast, you had said something like, you know, sometimes it can take like 30 days and sometimes months and even could be like, could be years or maybe maybe I read that somewhere. I don't know if that's something that you said. But so I yeah, wonder, so like, let, me, let me clarify a couple things. So the original dopamine fast is not some kind of magic cure for the addiction. It's just a place to start because unless we reset reward pathways, we can't see true cause and effect. And we also can't enjoy more modest rewards because we're caught in that vortex of chasing our particular drug. So the 30-day fast is where you delete Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever it is, and you go for 30 days knowing that you're gonna go into withdrawal, you're gonna feel worse before you feel better. But typically if people can make it to weeks three or four, kind of the light comes out, they feel better. But that's not like, yay, I'm cured from my addiction. Right. That, that's kind of then the beginning of being able to say, wow, when I look back now at the way that I was using social media, that was really destructive. And I don't want to continue to use in that way. So now I can make some decisions with actual access to real information, right? Because I've got a clearer head, a clearer sensorium. So now I can decide, okay, for my profession, I'm a musician, like social media is key. But when I try to manage my own social media account, I spiral. So maybe I can get my publicist to manage my social media account, or I can hire somebody you know, in a dedicated role to manage my social media account. Um, and so that, that's what I talk about in the book is self-binding. We can figure out the ways to put these literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can either be more successful with moderation or more successful with abstinence depending upon what we choose and then it's an experiment then we go from there and we see how it goes you know 
Was I able to moderate? Was I able to abstain? If yes, great, let's keep doing it. If not, what can I tweak or change so that I can get to that place? You don't ever want to feel hopeless about it and like this is inevitable and I'm never going to get out of this vortex. There's always hope. And by the way, Alec, you know, you're not alone. We're, we're all struggling. I was just telling Matt before we started that my latest, you know, YouTube addiction is watching the, you know, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trials. Like, I, I'm watching every, that a lot. Oh, I know, of course. We're all sucked in. And of course, that's almost nice, right? That you and I are watching the same thing. We're kind of bonded through our mutual watching, but it's not really anything we really want to be bonded over. We want to be bonded over other things. When you had your book come out and it did really well, did you get like a, a high from that? Totally. And I was on... What did you do when, it, when you came down? Because like, I feel like as, a, as an artist... Or, um, you know, like when you put out a, a piece of work, like I had a song called Let Me Down Slowly that did really well. It has like over a billion streams on Spotify now. You know, I tried to enjoy the ride as much as I could, sort of. You know, I'm like very neurotic and I'm always worried about everything and I feel like everything is fickle and it's going to go away. But 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 the come down was real, you know, and it's like yeah. when you go into when you go on stage and you have a great show, you know, it's all these screaming people and then you go back into your room. There's nothing, you know, it's right. like, what did you do? Because the come down from having that hit and then the subsequent desire to chase the hit again yeah. um, uh, is incredibly debilitating. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it really, it not only makes us unhappy, but I think it also cripples the creative ability, right? So I did have that. I found myself going on Amazon every other hour, seeing what my ranking was. You know, once it got to like two or one, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and then about two weeks into it, I was like, this is crazy, and I'm going to stop doing that. So I just got off. So I'm a real, like, abstinence person for me personally. I just don't. Like, my phone, I, I keep it turned off and in my bag almost all the time. I almost never use it because I just find if it's there, it's very difficult for me. And once I send something out into the world, there's always a part of my brain that's waiting for the reply, which is in and of yes. itself a kind of a strange, suspended, you know, animation so for me, it's just easier to not be on. And the come down from any artistic achievement, you know, that's dopamine free fall. You go into it. There's no, we always pay a price. You can't have those kinds of huge successes without following on the heels. The come down, and I would even say a certain amount of shame. I don't know about you, Alec, but yes. I, it's, it's an odd thing, right? Well, explain what that means for you. So I'm making sure that I'm identifying with the right. Right. Well, it's kind of a self-loathing. Is that I, I'm jealous of the person that I was when I made it, and I yeah. want to be that person again, you know, because yeah. I also realize, like, from day to day, I'm different. Is that what you mean? Or or what, what do you mean by that? Explain it. Well, I mean, what, what I mean is that I think, you know, we always, we're always trying to look for a reason for something and to sort of be able to tell a story. But I actually think that when we... I think shame is a very important and pro-social emotion. Like, what is shame? What is the purpose of shame? It's evolved over millions of years to get us to pay attention to group norms and not separate from the tribe, right? So when we, when we experience any kind of separation, whether we distinguish ourselves in a bad way or in a very good way, we're still separated. And the result of that to bring us back in is shame, right? That's the role of shame, to bring us back in. So when we do something that's socially not acceptable, right, and we feel shame for that, 
when things go well, like, you know, in a mutual help group, that can be a way to bring us back into the tribe. But it can also be a way to make us feel very more isolated. But what, what were you what are you ashamed of? Like, what do you mean? But like, okay, so let me get to that again. So when we do something, when we get success, we're still separated. And I think it's natural. This is my hypothesis. I think it's natural and spontaneous in the heels of great success to feel shame for no apparent reason. I don't think we need to really even look for, well, why am I ashamed? I, was, I think it's like what happens on, it's part of the physiology. You get that huge dopamine hit, then you get a dopamine come down, and that can manifest as shame. And it's just the price you pay for success. So then the question is, well, what's the antidote to that? Yeah, we can keep chasing greater successes, or we can fully and radically embrace that those successes will come with a lot of baggage and a lot of pain and that it's going to be very, very mixed. Is there a third option? <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think, Matt? I mean, what you're both in the music business and, yeah. you know. And in recovery. Yes. I didn't want to say it. I wanted yeah, no, to let you say it. Was, no, yeah. I um, Well, I think what was most compelling to me is this, your central thesis that there's a, a correlation between depression and limitless opportunities right. for pleasure. That really resonated with me. I mean, even though I've been free of drugs and alcohol for 16 years, there are still an extraordinary number of opportunities for stimulation. Right. Um, and so what I'm most curious to know about is you, you talk about how like there's this the body is always trying to to restore balance. So Alec gets a huge high after a show and then there's a, a corresponding come down. Right. And, um, and I really liked how you described that kind of in terms of homeostasis that we're like right. the body, it's just this kind of elegant function that uh, resonates with all of these other forms of balance that the body is always trying to establish. Right. So yeah, go ahead, Alec. I was just going to say, you know, what I find is my issue with um, like self-moderating and stuff. It's like, you know, they say, I was thinking about the other day, it's like as a song idea, and maybe this is sort of like, um, maybe this doesn't relate exactly to what we were saying, but it's like, you know, they say everything in moderation. And uh, I feel like, um, you know, if I'm going to like, you know, try and live my life in moderation, I get obsessed with then being, uh, living my life in moderation <laughs> and then it becomes an obsession and I, and then I fall off too. Then that becomes the obsession as well. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way as well, because when I have to then force myself to put my phone down or whatever, I'm looking for the dopamine high when I am, okay, yes, I was able to put my phone down and then I want to tell people that I did that. And then mm. that becomes my obsession. Mm -hmm. And so I don't find that there's a way where I can sort of not be obsessed with mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and that tells me that you're really still struggling to kind of find this balance. Mm -hmm. You find yourself either, you know, swinging to the pleasure side or to the pain side, but you're struggling to get, get you know, kind of hover right, right around the middle. I think that is my balance. What is your balance? Um, that it just, it's sort just of like, going, it, whoop, 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 whoop. yeah, I really do. I think that's my balance as a human being. I've always been that way. It's like, it's, it's all or nothing. You know, I'm like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Or if I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do it. You know, so, like moderation is not, it doesn't really appear to be an option for me. Yeah. But the point is, is does it cause you suffering though? Yeah, I suffer all the time. That's why I'm an artist. That's why I write about these things. You know, most of my life I felt like I've very, I've, I've tortured myself a lot, you know, mm -hmm. um, and you know, 
maybe I wonder if that's just who I am, you know? Because then it's like, then it's like I'll find myself. It's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, for example, like I'll be listening to your, you know, the the podcast that you did with Joe Rogan or whatever, and then I'm like, okay, well, then then I'm like, I'm obsessed with figuring out like what is this? Like, let me find the balance, like you know. And it's like, <laughs> yes, I'm suffering. I feel like I have since I was a young boy. <laughs> I don't know. This is like maybe I'm bearing too much. No, that's um, why we're here. But yeah. uh, I wonder if, if if moderation is not necessarily possible for me. Also, because like I've seen some of my friends as well, like sort of they go through the uh, the the um, the AA process and have been successful, but uh, you know, then sort of they find something else to replace it with or whatever. And I wonder if it's like, you know, if I, if there, if, if, you know, if it's just different types of addictions, you know, and some are more, um, some are more acceptable and some are, you know, less acceptable, but like, it's like my friends who I find or in recovery or like myself, when we try to do things that are moderate, we're obsessed with being moderate. And that just appears to me to be another form of addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I think it's good to know yourself and to be aware of your tendencies and to have like a realistic perception of them. But I don't think that that means that you just have to say, well, that's who I am. And I'm either going to be, it's going to be all, or it's going to be nothing, especially if it makes you unhappy, which it sounds like it does. Yeah, I think it does. But I've, I've yet to see like myself included, like an addictive person, not be addicted not become an addictive person. It's like maybe they are able to abstain from like a certain addiction, um, but it's always that that type of energy that's headed in like a certain direction or the desire for for that is like always has to be channeled through something else, you know. And it's like it's like you know have you know what I mean? I feel like it's just sort of like you're oriented in a certain way, and it's like you know you just have to figure out how you sort of like continue down this path, but in like a more sustainable way, but like just pick a healthier. <laughs> Well, that's just it, though. It becomes yeah. it becomes more sustainable, right. you know, and I think that the impulses become less pronounced. So if I had an addiction to painkillers, which happens to be true, like <laughs> I, you know, and I went through periods where I was like, I cannot face the day without this. Yeah. I'm so afraid of what is next. I do not identify with that person anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, that was 17 years ago, and I still experience addictive impulses, but it is far far less acute and so much of the recovery literature is all about finding this sort of middle yeah. path which to me you know was actually extremely unappealing when i first mm -hmm. came in that i was just like i don't want to have anything to do with that i love euphoria you know <laughs> and if i you know like i liked excitement but now i find more and more that sort of a sustained balance in my life is actually what gives me the most happiness and alec you're i mean you're in your 20s right yeah, I'm 28, gonna be 28. Yeah, the person I'm describing was when I was your age, you know? I, I fully get it, but I will say, I know plenty of people with addictive personalities, though, that have found that balance, but also now pursue it. You know what I mean? And it's just like you are where you are and you want what you want. It, you know, I don't think there's any value judgment associated with it. That's right, and I would also say that, you know, it's wonderful that you've been able to express yourself through music and, and find meaning in your suffering because it gives you something to say. On the, other, on the other hand, I think that can be a little bit of a romanticized and dangerous trope, this idea that, like, oh, we artists are like this, and in order to have material and produce music, we are just going to have to be like that. Because... You know, artists can also find balance and find happiness and peace in their lives and also make amazing art. So, um, who is a good example of that? Examples of artists 
that w- exemplify what exactly? Who found balance, who are able to to do what they're doing and sort of like mm, in a healthy live way. a life of moderation. Yeah. I don't know any of these people personally, but I would first point to Radiohead. I would point to Tom York. I mean, you don't think Tom York is tortured? You know, I've, I've read interviews with him where he is like, sorry to disappoint folks. I have no trail of abuse to speak of. Like, um, yes, he, he does. If you, if I had to guess, I would say he strikes me as a tortured person, but I also know that he has a family. I know that he has longevity, um, and he still makes great music. So to me, that's evidence that there is some amount of balance that that's working, but also there was some interview and obviously I don't have it in front of me, but where he did say something like, you know, I'm not the tortured person most people think I am. I, I do agree with you that like it is like, you know, it can be like a romanticized trope, but but at the same time, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's like a chicken or the egg thing too. Is, is, it, is it like, you know, um, are artists artists because they feel tortured or do they torture themselves to create great art? And I feel like oftentimes, you know, did you not have to torture yourself to to get, graduate from Stanford and Yale and to write a book? And were there parts of it that were very painful for you that you had to force yourself through? I'm not really sure that it's possible to achieve those things without having to torture yourself in some way, you know, like to make those kinds of contributions. Although I do agree that it's a romanticized trope. I don't know that there's anybody who achieves great things who doesn't torture themselves greatly to do them, you know, mm. at their own expense um, because they have to suffer to do those things like there's no way to do those things in in a moderate way you know well i mean i mean i will agree with you that one of the ways to endure the suffering that is life is to channel it into some kind of purpose and meaning and so then we can suffer and tolerate a lot more pain if it has some purpose for us so i think that's actually a really smart way to go right but i don't think we have to like press the, the accelerator on the suffering. I, I think that life is already hard for, ev- for everybody. It, it just makes a lot of sense to me to try to mitigate our suffering while realizing that suffering is inevitable and taking our suffering and trying to turn it to some good, some higher meaning or higher purpose, um, which is slightly different from what you're suggesting, which is a sort of like, I'm going to throw in the towel. My life is crazy. No. And, <laughs> You know, and crazy is, is art, you know. Um, you know, that's an exaggeration of what, of what you said, but just to kind of, you know, sort of paraphrase it a little bit. The other thing I would say is I have lots of examples of incredible artists um, who have given up this kind of extreme life, you know, and also, you know, this idea that they have to, for example, use substances in order to access their art. So I have, and they're my patients. I mean, I have many, many patients who are wonderful artists. In fact, you know, my office is filled with their amazing work, but I can tell you that the best work that they do is after they get sober. And what a lot of them will talk about how like something like cannabis, when they were in their addiction, they were convinced that they needed cannabis to, you know, be creative because they felt so creative with cannabis. And I said, well, I hear you that cannabis makes you feel more creative, but what did you actually create while you were using? And then it's like, there's a big, you know, pause there because there's nothing, you know, so there, there can be a real gap between our subjective experience of what our addiction does for us and what it actually does for us. So I think this is really important, you know, to acknowledge. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the antidote. Anna, in your book, the antidote you prescribe is pain. 
right? So well, but it's part of it, part of it, right? Right. Um, I don't I mean, mean to minimize it. No, no, not at all, not at all. Well, it'll be best in your words, as, as you describe, especially maybe through the seesaw analogy. Sure. Okay, I can talk about that. So, <clears throat> you know, one of the interesting findings in neuroscience is that pain and pleasure are co-located in the brain, so the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. And there are certain rules governing that balance, and the most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level, or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. And this physiologic drive toward homeostasis is one of the most powerful biological mechanisms in nature. So what that means is that with any deviation from neutrality to the side of pleasure or pain, our brains are going to work hard to restore a level balance. So when we do something, we have a pleasurable experience, we release dopamine, which is our pleasure neurotransmitter, in this very specific circuit of the brain called the reward pathway, and the balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than our brain is going to recalibrate and start to downregulate dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline tonic levels of dopamine firing, but actually below baseline. That's the come down, the after effect, the hangover. I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it there. So they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. Again, that's, you know, as Alec was describing, he had this great success. Uh, with his song, I had some success with my book, and we both experienced this this come down afterwards. If we wait long enough and with enough uh, brain plasticity, uh, you know that the gremlins hop off the balance and homeostasis is restored. But if we continue to try to recreate that feeling by reaching for our drug again and again and again, what happens is we start to accumulate enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room, and now we're getting into the addicted brain. So the first thing to do, uh, the first antidote is actually to abstain from our drug of choice for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance so that our own resetting homeostatic mechanisms can bring us back into balance. But the other thing to do to get our dopamine is to actually intentionally do things that are hard. Because when we press on the pain side of the balance, those neuroadaptation gremlins hop on the pleasure side of the balance, and that's called hormesis. It's Greek for to set in motion, and it's the way in which mild to moderate toxic stimuli actually trigger our own body's re-regulating mechanisms to start to create more dopamine, more serotonin, more norepinephrine, and other feel-good hormones. So inviting pain into our lives on purpose, including through uh, creative endeavors, can be a way to reset uh, or attempt to reset that that homeostasis. Cool. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple of like very staggering experiments that you cited. Yeah. So, and specifically the ones with the rats. Is there one that you could tell us about right now that shows how powerful dopamine is? Yeah, I mean, dopamine, you know, is not the only neurotransmitter involved in pleasure and uh, the experience of pleasure and the phenomenology of addiction, but it's probably the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. Dopamine is probably even more important to the experience of reward or motivation than it is to pleasure itself. So, for example, mm. there's a very famous experiment where if you engineer a rat to have no dopamine receptors in 
the reward pathway of the, of the brain and you put food in the rat's mouth, it will eat the food and seem to get pleasure in that food. But if you put the food even a body length away, the rat will starve to death because it won't be motivated to get up and go over and, and get the food. I read, I read that study and it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So that's where dopamine is. It's important to pleasure, but it's probably even more important to motivation or the thing that gets us up and, you know, moving toward our, our drug of choice. Also, it's important to recognize that dopamine is released not just by intoxicants like drugs and alcohol, but also by reinforcing behaviors like social media, online gambling, online gaming, certain types of food, sex, all of these things um, release dopamine. Dopamine's not a bad thing, um, right? So dopamine is really just a signal for approaching or avoiding. That's profound, though, that the, it's actually the seeking more than the, the actual indulgence which is, has, that releases more dopamine. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Which is why all those rituals around getting our drug become almost mm. as important as the drug itself, which is another important piece around dopamine that we have dopamine released not just when we get the reward, but mm. also when we have reminders of the reward, followed mm. by a little mini dopamine deficit state, which then creates the motivation to go get the reward itself. So just yeah. being you know, reminded with alerts, for example, that there's something new on social media, mm-hmm. in and of itself gives us a little bit of a dopamine hit followed by a dopamine deficit state, which then creates the craving to go look and see what that was. I had heard that something, it's, is there a term called techno interference? Have you heard of this? It's no. Where, it's something like, there was some study that shows like, if the three of us are talking you know, at a restaurant and we have, we, ha- we all have our phones on the table, just the, the mere presence of them being within eyesight, it actually substantially diminishes the quality uh, of our engagement or my ability to engage with you guys. Yeah, it's like distracting, distracting, yeah. Yeah, there are studies showing that if, if you're in a classroom and you're not on your laptop, but the other students are on your laptop, you know, that, 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 that is distracting, even for people who are not on their laptop. Oh, wild. There's a great anecdote that Aza Raskin, my colleague, likes to quote, where they had built this AI machine that could solve this really complex problem, these really complex problems, and they kept trying to, like, interfere with its ability to problem solve. And they tried all these different ways, but in the end, when they rolled in this old-fashioned TV set and just put on the screen in static, that was completely disruptive for this computer's ability to problem solve, which I think speaks to the incredibly distracting and reinforcing nature of the screen itself. The devices themselves, even separate from what they lead to, um, you know, are reinforcing and distracting for us. Alec, initially you were, the first question you had, Alec, was what do we do? The two things, that there's self-binding, right, where you actually try and abstain. But then the other thing that you talk about is radical honesty and oh, yeah. pro-social shame. So how does that, um, in the context that we're describing, that Alec's song is describing, especially in the pandemic, in the context of the pandemic, where he's having uh, this really destructive, toxic relationship with social media, where would radical honesty and pro-social shame as a prescription fit into that? Well, you know, Alec has, has sort of figured that out on his own, that really being very transparent with his own experiences and his struggles has been kind of a catharsis for him. Is that true, Alec, kind of like a therapeutic? Yeah, I think that it's therapeutic. Yeah, good. Um, so, so w- what I find with people in recovery and robust recovery is that they can't lie about anything. They can't lie about, you know, what they had for breakfast, nothing. 
because once they start lying, they're at high risk for relapse, which is really, mm-hmm. yeah, really interesting, right? Like, what is the role of honesty in helping us maintain our recovery or even just living flourishing lives? And as I talk about in the book, it works on many different levels. One is that it helps promote intimacy. You know, when we're honest with others, we think when we reveal our flaws, people are going to go running, but instead they're really they're drawn to us because they see their own humanity in our struggles. And that's very powerful. Also, I do believe that radical honesty probably primes and stimulates the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is that great matter area behind our foreheads that's so important to storytelling, delayed gratification, future consequences. And people are natural liars. So the average adult tells one to two lies per day. So telling the truth is something that requires like intentional uh, engagement, right? Um, so, and when we do that, when we make that effort, that's something hard that we do that stimulates, uh, you know, our brains in ways that I think help us manage our consumption and be able to see more clearly what we're doing. And then on a very different level, you know, the stories that we tell about our lives are not just a way to organize past the past. They're also, they create a roadmap for the future. And when we're telling true stories, we have much better roadmaps. So one thing that's interesting to me in my work over 20 plus years is when I listen to people's stories, I, I can tell by the way that they tell their stories, whether or not these are healing narratives or, mm. or not, you know. Mm. And, and people who tell stories that aren't healing are often people who are like, it's this person's fault, it's that person's fault, but nothing's my fault, mm. right? Whereas people who are telling stories that are adhering as close to probably actual reality as, as we can get with our human perception are people who tend to be able to access the kind of wisdom that allows for sustained recovery. Wow. Well, thank you both so much. This okay, has really great. been Yeah, tremendous. and thanks to you both. And Alex, thank you so much for your um, transparency. I, I know that you pour your heart into your music and that's what makes your music great. But it's also wonderful how you're willing to be so open and honest with your own struggles because I think that helps other people, you know, to see someone like you who's talented and famous but is also still kind of trying to figure out life. I wonder also just one other thing too. Yeah. Like one of the things in, in my life that what you said resonates with me um, about sort of like, you know, the difference between a healing story and a not healing story. What I wonder though is that sometimes sort of like what it appears to me is that like the healing story is actually sometimes farther away from reality than it being like maybe, you know, blaming on something that's external, but you can't change what's external. And so sometimes you have to change. But oftentimes like, you know, sometimes it is like, for example, like, you know, the way that education was uh, structured for me when I was younger was a problem. But like that, that's true, you know, but when yeah. I sort of accepted, like, you know, OK, you know what, like, ultimately, like, there's nothing I can do about it. This is my fault. And I put it on myself. But it, it really wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So is it possible that sort of like the healing stories are farther away from reality, but more effective in healing? than sort of like the ones that are um, the not healing stories can be true, but the truth is not necessarily healing. So um, let me let me unpack that a little bit, because I think I know what you're getting at. And I would say it a little bit differently. Um, I really do think that the healing story is the truest story. And that means that means validating what was wrong uh, and what with the way in which you were truly victimized, like a, a school system that didn't accommodate for your type of brain. And that's that's terrible. And that's a bummer. And that made school, I'm guessing, really horrible for you. But also then validating, well, OK, school didn't work out. But what are these other venues 
where, where I can, okay, so that's a healing story and that's the right kind of story to tell. I think what you're getting at though is otherwise is something that they call an AA fake it till you make it. There are ways in which at times we have to tell ourselves something that's true that we don't necessarily believe. Mm. So that we can heal enough to get to the point where we believe the thing is true. Like I, I once had someone to say, well, I don't think it's really true that I'm a good person. I'm like, well, you are a good person. That you don't believe it, you know, is a separate matter. But now you need to fake it till you make it and go through your life as if you are a good person till you get to the place where you can see that that is a true thing. Ah, okay, that makes sense to me. That makes sense? Yeah. Yes, good, I understand. Good. good. So nice to meet you both. Thanks. Bye-bye. Nice Check out Alex's uncommentary viral track, Devil Doesn't Bargain, and his These Two Windows track, Must Have Been the Wind. Also be sure to pick up either of Anna's books, Dopamine Nation or Drug Dealer MD. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram. Our mix engineer is Lou Carlozo. Social media manager is Bailey Constas. And digital producer is Keenan Cush. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about the show and give us a review and some stars. For more information, please go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.